If you consider that 90% of the states are making losses every year, and at least according to polls in the UK and the US, 80% of the people are not satisfied how they are governed. So you have 80% dissatisfied customers and 90% market participants that are making losses. Man, there must be something for entrepreneurs. It must be possible to make the world a better and a freer and a, and a more just place. Welcome to Innovational Correctness, a podcast all about innovation and transformation, hosted by David Luna, author, keynote speaker, and founder of Gamma Digital and Beyond. David and his guests discuss real-world practical advice on how to best harness the creativity of your employees and go from idea to product, giving you unique perspectives and insights into their success, all while separating hype from reality and replacing bullshit bingo with common sense. Let's jump right in to the show. Welcome back to another episode of the Innovational Correctness Podcast. In today's episode, I talked to Dr. Titus Giebel to explore how free private cities could fundamentally change the way we view government as a whole and force governments to compete for their citizens. Titus is a German entrepreneur with a PhD in international law. He has also worked as a manager for various companies in the biotechnology, venture capital, and commodities industry. He was also the former CEO of Deutsche Rohstoff AG, an exploration company with his own production of gold, silver, tungsten, and various other commodities. And he was also the managing director of Rhine Petroleum. Today, Titus works as an entrepreneur and advocate for new special economic zones, particularly in developing countries. He's also the founder and president of Free Private Cities Incorporated, a board member of the Seasteading Institute with Peter Thiel and Patrick Friedman, as well as a partner at New Way Capital. With Free Private Cities, Titus wants to push and evolve the idea of entirely new ways of living and working together. He has basically dedicated the rest of his life to making Free Private Cities a reality, which I found the most remarkable aspect. So essentially, someone that walks the talk. Enough talk, let's go meet Titus. So, welcome to the podcast, Titus. So, do you want to briefly introduce yourself to the listeners and explain who you are and what you do? Sure. My name is Tito Skebel. I'm an entrepreneur, but a, a jurist by education. I started my career in Germany as a lawyer, but after a couple of years, I found out that this is not uh, what I want to do until the rest of my life. And I wanted to create something and then became an entrepreneur, first as a venture capitalist uh, investor. Then I started my own company and eventually ended in the resources business, found a successful company that is in the production, mining, oil and gas and uh, went public and could retire at the end of uh, 2014. And then I focus what I'm going to talk today about is free private city, a new model of living together. Okay, wow, that's a very broad uh, career that you have had there. So would you mind giving the listeners your, uh, let's say, elevator pitch for the free private cities so that the listeners know what we're going to discuss throughout the episode? Imagine if a private company offers you protection of life, liberty and property and you pay a fixed amount for that per year and your rights and obligation other than that are also written down in a contract 
um, which is a real social contract. And this contract cannot be changed by either side, not by me as the operator, not by you as the resident. That also means you cannot interfere in the contracts of the others. And other de than this, you are free to do as you choose. And of course, if you don't like this model, you just stay away and you can also leave any time. Um, this is called a free private city. Okay, so before we go into a little more detail, maybe there are some listeners out there that have heard of, say, special economic zones or even charter cities. Can you briefly mention what the difference is between those models? Yes, the special economic zone is probably the most known, I would say, special regime in the world. Normally, I say every special economic zone in the world, and there's supposedly 5,000, but I would say only about 500 are really uh, active or active in a way that they're making profit and are success. The special economic zone normally has some extra rules with regards to taxes, labor law, some regulation, import-export. Some people know the term free trade zones, but today it's more common special economic zones. Every one of those zones is a confession of the state that obviously the rules, their rules are not the best. Otherwise, it would be no need to establish such a zone. And some of those zones are very prominent and, and very famous and, and successful, like um, Jebel Ali in Dubai, one of the biggest uh, zones in the world. Then you have the Dubai International Financial Center, which even has own courts and an own legal system. And then you have the very old one, Shannon, a former airport in Ireland, also a successful zone. This is all more or less established. Charter City is a new type and concept developed by Paul Romer, a well-known economist. And he has found out that um, one of the most obstacles for development in third and second world countries is a lack of good institutions. It's corruption, intransparency, inefficiency. And his idea was, hey, why don't we just import a successful a legal system, but not only the laws, because this is already happening, but together with the administration. And his example was creating a new Hong Kong in the Caribbean with Canadian public officers, something like that. It's still a traditional top-down approach. It didn't turn out very well in, in practice because obviously countries do not want to have a foreign flag or foreign rules and foreign public officers in their territory. And in so far, that didn't really come together. But now the charter city definition is a little bit broader. So basically every special economic zone that is not only for, for companies, but also for residents and which has some more special rules than just taxes and tariffs. But so far, we have only a handful of developments that you could really say that these are maybe something like a charter city. Charter stands for they have own rules, they have own charter Uh, which is different from, from the rest of the country. The ideal example would be Hong Kong. Indeed, it's had uh, British common law within a Chinese legal system. It was the same, was one country, two systems. But um, obviously, the Chinese are not sticking to the agreements they had made in 1997 uh, when they took over. Uh, free privacy is, is going one step further, saying, no, forget about other countries bringing their public officers. We're just um, making this as a private company, as a state service provider, because what people really want is security, in dispute resolution and some infrastructure. And frankly, you do not need a state for that, nor a monarch, nor a dictator. A private company can do that. And that is what free private city 
is making different from charter cities and from, from special economic zones is that this is a, there's no charter, there's a contract. And the contract is, is protecting you much, much better than any charter which will be interpreted by politicians, by courts, by administrators. Um, whereas if you feel violated in your contract, you have a direct claim. You can directly go to independent arbitration, which is also part of the model that any dispute between these free private city operator and the free private city resident is not dealt with by free private city courts. But you would go to outside independent arbitration. So you have a clear legal standing. You are basically a client and the operator is a service provider. And I think that this is much superior to any of the other models, including the states of today, because it's something we already know. It's there's an there's a as a product on the market, and the operator has a has a profit incentive. That means uh, this, many people think it's a bad thing, but the opposite is true because a profit. Profit need for profit um, forces me not to waste resources, especially not to waste the resources of my clients because they otherwise will leave or new clients slash residents will not come and I eventually will go bankrupt. So I have to treat my customers well and I have to stick to my own rules and I, I don't have to waste money and I have constantly to be on the lookout for how can I improve my model so that people still satisfied despite there are new competitors out there, maybe a charter city, maybe uh, whatever, um, they came up with a new idea and it's obviously very, very attractive. So this um, kind of, of market pressure, of com competitive pressure that we already know from the, from the goods and services markets, now I'm just transferring that to our uh, coexistence because I think this is also market, I call it the market of living together. And I can not force people to come into my model, right? So the free private city would start just from scratch. So nobody is there. So you guarantee that it's 100% voluntary residents and informed consent. So they know what the rules are and they sign, sign the contract and they know what they have to pay per year. Probably not more than 1,500 euro or so per person per year. And then um, I cannot just change that and say, hey, by the way, you have to pay double next year, and, but you get other services that you didn't order. That is not possible in a free private city. So when I first heard about your free private city concept, my initial thought went straight to Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged, where one of the protagonists named John Galt steals the most productive entrepreneurs of that collapsing country into a private secluded valley, seeing the country then devolving into a dictatorship. So where did you originally get the idea from? Well, interestingly, that was indeed part of it. Um, I also read Ayn Rand and this interim solution that you just described, that people are hiding in a, in a hidden valley and, and start their business there and are going together with people who are like-minded, was not the final solution in Ayn Rand's novel, right? At the end, there is, I think, somebody writes, a, a famous judge writes a new constitution. And I, I think this, this is the wrong solution because the solution, what will happen to this constitution is what happened to other constitutions before. It will be interpreted against the, the letter uh, of the law. It will be interpreted in the current zeitgeist fashion or whatever uh, the politicians in power want. So I think interim solution is the final solution. That is, people just move together with their peers, with people who are like-minded. And that doesn't mean that people are all like, have the same wealth or have exactly the same opinion. But if you think live and let live, 
the classical liberal concept is a good concept, then you should not live together with people who think you should obey leadership. You should only do what your hollow book is telling you. And if you don't do that, we will kick you out of society. Or people who say that property is theft, right? They shouldn't live together with people who say, no, no, private property is what makes wealth, what creates wealth and freedom. Uh, otherwise, there will be endless political struggles. So I think my model of a free private city, of course, is for the, the likes of John God, for the likes of people who are creative, but also for people who just want to be left alone. And for people who just may be looking for a job and, and raise a family. But it's not for the people who really have a strong desire to impose their will upon others, which is a quite big number in society. So and so far, I would say, hey, I'm not pretending this is the ideal solution. I just tell you this is a, a market product, a niche product for a certain type of people. Other people might prefer other models. Look, if a free private city operator is a, is a for-profit company, they can maybe can come up with the idea, let's create a free private city for Catholic people, right? So that is all uh, conceivable, and I have absolutely no problem with that. I have even not a problem with communism as long as participation is voluntary, like in my model. If we take a look at history, at least this idea of a free private city doesn't seem to be completely new. You've just taken it to the next step, if you will. So maybe you can or give some examples throughout history that were similar to private city, showing that it's not that radically new and it's something that has existed at least in parts throughout history. Yeah, no, we you, we have kind of of private societies, for example, in resorts, you have kind of a homeowners association or take a cruise ship, right? A cruise ship is a private enterprise. It belongs to a cruise ship company and you maybe do your booking with a travel agent. Uh, but when you're on the high seas, there's only one ruler. This is the captain, right? And, and, and in principle, the captain could do whatever he wants, right? He could flock you if you didn't dress up well enough at the captain's dinner. He could even change the direction. And instead of going to the Caribbean, going directly to uh, Antarctica. But he's not going to do that. Why not, by the way? Because the moment you were would be back on land, you would sue the company, right? Well, you wouldn't care who the captain is. You would say, hey, I had a contract. Cruise in the Caribbean, not being flocked, was a side thing of the contract, I would say. So and that is that is not happening. And that is keeping the captain from doing what he wants. Is this threat of being sued for his behavior, being liable, and the company doesn't want that because they eventually fall bankrupt. So you, this is a kind of comparable to free private cities. The other thing is that we had in the Middle Ages in, in Central Europe, uh, in the Holy Roman Empire, Empire of Germination, as it was called, this uh, free imperial cities. Now, what was that? It was um, a development over several hundred years where cities were really coming to existence, right? Um, because you have to know that the, after the Roman Empire fall down, that for several hundred years, or the West Roman Empire, several hundred years, there were no such things as cities in Central Europe, right? It was really kind of dark ages. And only in, in, in one time, the year 1000, 1100, they, cities popped out, up again. And then the people in the city became more 
aware of what their capacities were and that the rulers, which were territorial monarchs, princes, bishops, um, they were not really caring what they did and they didn't even really know better how to rule. And so they came up with becoming more and more independent. The end of the story was that they were directly subordinated to the emperor. The emperor was far away and was weak at that time. So they were basically independent cities. And for the first, I would say, one or two hundred years, the, the, the monarchs really fighted against those cities because they I, I'm losing power if the city is becoming more independent. But surprisingly, after some time, it just turned around and the princes and monarchs um, said, please, please come and found a free imperial city because I will guarantee you this land and you're tax-free and all that. Why did this happen? Because they, they discovered that these free cities brought um, economic progress, which benefited also the surrounding countries, his territory, right? And this is in a way the reason why we do have special economic zones today. So you can see there is a chance for free private cities Normally, one might say, hey, why should, why should any country agree with that, right? It's, it's a semi-autonomous model. The current situation is that we, we are not seeking too full autonomy. We're going to governments and say, look, we want to make our own internal routes. We are still subject to your sovereignty, your foreign policy, your military defense. We stick to the international agreements you have conducted and some parts of your rules that are to be negotiated. But other than that, we want to have the right to make this resident contract, make our own limited regulation. And why countries could say yes to that is, is the same situation with special economic zones or the free imperial city of the Middle Ages, its own interests, right? It's a win-win situation. If you start something like that in an area where nothing happened before, and suddenly something like a Singapore is popping up or a Hong Kong or even a small Monaco, this is definitely um, a big plus for all the surrounding areas, which are still then in the territory of the of the host nation, and they are all paying taxes to the host nation. So this is why this can could happen in in reality, and is not just only uh, an utopian idea. Okay, so if say past examples in Germany and elsewhere were so successful, why do you think they didn't really prevail? At least, let's say Germany. I mean. Take Venice, for example. Venice um, was also an independent city and they lasted for 1100 years without a single government overthrown. So this is stability that uh, independent city can reach. And what happened to Venice also happened to the, to the uh, German free cities. Eventually, a big territorial power came in, in the case of Venice. It was Napoleon. In, in the case of Germany, this was often also Napoleon. Uh, but other cities survived until um, the uh, the end of World War One, right? And then it was just thrown into basically one central government. Still a federal system, and you still have two nominally independent cities, uh, which are resulting from Middle Ages, which is Hamburg and Bremen. Uh, but they're just federal states, right? City states. So they're not really independent any longer. But you can say, yeah, this may happen again, that a big power, a uh, big imperial power is coming. But if you take that time that, take Venice, Venice is 
was established out of the, I would say, the remnants of the East Roman Empire, Byzance. And it was formerly still part of Byzance, but, but in principle it was more and more independent and eventually became fully independent, had an own navy, uh, one of the strongest at that time. So it survived 1100 years and then Napoleon came and it's a 200 years since then. So I think you cannot say it doesn't work. It has worked in the past for a very long time. And it can work again. And I think we will always have times where people are aware that they may be better off in smaller entities and that they have more freedom, more wealth and more self-determination there. And then there will always be a time where big, there's always a tendency to expand, right? There will big uh, empires now. The European Union is trying to become such an empire. They are, they are coming up, but I think... Um, in the world of today, the uh, level of um, of the standard of living that we have today, they probably cannot be kept uh, upright by big empires who uh, who tell everybody what they have to do. And I think some of those small um, entities have survived until today. Even in Europe, you have very small states like Monaco, like Liechtenstein, San Marino. Take all these small states like Iceland, Switzerland, Singapore. They normally have a much higher standard of living as their peers, their big countries in the neighborhood. And I mean, this is a sign. And I think people are going to recognize that. And we will see what is left in 100 years from the US, from the European Union, and even from big China. Why do you think we need a new construct and why now? And why do you think democracy needs new products instead of, say, an update? You mentioned some of the reasons, but maybe you can also explain to adding upon that. Why do you think the structure of government hasn't changed very much over the last, say, hundreds of years? Yeah, true. It is indeed that you are basically running all 200 countries with very old models, right? And in the rest of the market, you you have the possibility to introduce new models. Then we will see if this works or not, right? And within the market of living together, it's ex extremely hard to get into that. It's basically you have to make a revolution or a secession. All things that are, are related to violence and big power involved to create a new product and even failing products like the Soviet Union. And I mean, every reasonable scholar like Ludwig von Mises, they predicted that this is not going to work because you have no price signal. You do not know. You have no indicator of scarcity. So this is going to fail. True, but it took 70 years um, for the people to find that out. Right. And that is something which is a, is a real problem. So. I think it's not necessarily that, that we need a special reform on democracy. We need, in general, more and new and other products in the market of living together. And then people can see and they can find out what works best. I mean, even if you take democracy, you have a big variety of products, right? You have a country like North Korea, which which calls themselves a democracy, right? I mean, China calls themselves a democracy. Uh, the Soviet Union was calling themselves a democracy. And uh, then you have countries with has direct democracy like Switzerland. Um, you have more presidential democracies like the US or France. And you have a party democracy like in Germany, where parties are actually ruling the country. So um, so if you say, hey, let's reform democracy, you first have to answer the question, which, which democracy, right? And now here's the problem which I see in all systems, but especially in democracies, 
But this is the same problem you would have in a dictatorship because a dictator also somehow needs the support of at least a large group in the country. Or if people are really feeling totally pissed, then there is a is a tendency that there will be a coup d'etat or whatever new party is coming in or a military coup or whatever. So this, what I'm describing now, which I call the political circle, this is the problem. It's, it's a problem in democracy, but it's a problem, I would say, all over the place. And, and it starts as, as following. First and foremost, most people want to increase their standard of living. Let's take this as a given, right? Uh, there's certainly some people who are escorts, but 99% of the people want to increase their standard of living. What is the easiest way of, of increasing your, the standard of living is just take away from other people. Because then you don't have to work for your own. You just take it from others. So now we are not like that, right? So most people have, for, for ethical or religious or educational reasons, they are not just robbing other people and not just going into a, a shop and taking money out of, out of the cashier. That's not going to happen. And most people are not prepared to do that. So what do they instead? So they turn to the only institution that is legally entitled to take away from others, which is the state, right? And it doesn't, doesn't make a difference if this is a democracy or a dictatorship or whatever kind of, of system. So if the state is entitled to take away from others, then these people, and now we have a special problem in a democracy, they elect politicians who promise them to distribute, redistribute more. If a politician is telling you, look, for party A, you have the choice as a voter. Choice A, hard work, 10 hours a day, you get 100 euro for that. Option B, B, B. <laughs> choice B, um, you don't work at all, you get 100 uh, euro for free, you just vote for me. So, and that's a problem. It's and you cannot even judge the people for that. It's a, it's a minimal principle, right? We are, we human beings are conditioned that we should, uh, we try to do as less as possible to get the biggest result, which is efficient, right? That's made, that was the reason why we invented all these great machines that are helping us uh, having a high standard of living. But if this minimal principle, as I call it, uh, is, is coming together with policy, political power, then we have a problem, right? Because and that is going to happen, right? People don't say, uh, give me the money of others. No, no, they they tell it. Let's be solidaric. Let's let's share. This this is what they say. But it's it's there's no difference. It's just um, the disguise in words. So they want other people's money. Is that really sharing? If I use force or coercion, to me that wouldn't be sharing the way they frame it. No, they frame it like that because they say, well, you are. Uh, David, you are a bright guy. You have a higher income than me, which I, I'm a thump guy. So I I think it's fair that you give half of what you gain or the difference between our incomes, you give half of, of, the, of the difference to me. That's fair sharing, right? Because you are stronger, you're more intelligent. So And, and the problem with that um, approach is that over time, more and more people find out that it's much easier instead of this 10 hours hard work, just go to the state and say, we need money because we are disadvantages, victims, or whatever. So over time, more and more groups in society are finding out that it's easier to, to increase your standard of living by being unproductive um, and doing bullshit work and get, getting paid by the state or getting direct transfers from the state. And less and less people are working. That leads us to a situation where the productivity is sinking and where the depth of the state is growing. 
sounds familiar or it's what we have now and because otherwise the problem is there are politicians are not stupid there are politicians who discover that this is a problem but if they say we have to uh, reform the state and we have to leave people their more of their money lower taxes and redistribute less eventually they will be voted out of power by the people who say hey we have enough for everyone you are entitled to a house to a job to a flat screen tv That's your and human rights, right? There's, you have no chance as, as, say, a libertarian candidate going in front of the people, the crowd, the crowd and saying, vote for me, I do nothing for you, but you have the liberty to, cho to choose for yourself. No chance in no society. So that leads us to the next level, which is intensive redistribution uh, fights. Because as we have heard, State is running out of money. Debts are increasing. Now they have to print money to uh, to lower the interest rate artificially so that the state can still pay their debts. But the end is near. It will eventually come like in Venezuela. And then there will be radical reforms. There will maybe even be system changes, maybe even be revolutions. And you know what's happening then, David? Let's hear it. The circle starts anew. And now my question is, or my thought was, how can we get out of that? And my answer is, what is it better than a democracy where you have co-determination rights? Well, let's call it a full democracy where you can decide for your own. And the others cannot just decide about your wealth. You decide about your wealth. But you can also decide to make all kinds of charity. You can also associate yourself with other people and you say, hey, we make a, um, a majority election vote on certain types of, of, of my wealth or certain types of my, my life. That is all possible. But it's not possible that people go to another person and say, hey, we are two and you are one and we have decided that you owe us half of your wealth. So I think, um, and even the big thinkers of democracy like Jean-Jacques Rousseau, they have discovered in the beginning that they said, before you establish majority rule, you have to have an agreement that majority rule should be applied. And for this agreement, you need 100% consent. And this is all make only makes sense because otherwise, just as I, in my example, two people would go to a third person and say, we are, we are two, you are one, we overvote you now to give us your money. And and that is not, that does not work, of course. Uh, uh, and, and in so far, we don't have, we never had such a system where people were 100% giving consent to a certain type of majority rule. But um, this is because our systems developed from totalitarian, absolute monarchies, then there was a constitutional monarchy, and the group of people who were entitled to vote is, was constantly growing. The moment this grows is going into a group of people who are not contributing, for example, the public officers who are paid out of taxes, they shouldn't be allowed to vote, or people who who get just money from the state and do not pay in, they should not be allowed to vote because it's a conflict of interest. But this is not this this is not feasible in a current mass democracy. So one man, one vote, or one person, one vote is the only rule. The only thing people accept is that children should not vote. But even this is uh, this is endangered at the moment. So the the tendency that I see as a student of history is that over time, the more and more people get a right to vote, the more and more the, the, the countries get indebted. And at the end, um, that doesn't turn out well. So we have to find better systems. 
because especially the 20th century has shown that overthrowing old governments is one thing, but then introducing fascist or communist regimes has led to tens of millions of deaths. I, I don't think that we want to repeat that. And so far, we have to... We have to really come up with new ideas and then the world can see, not by a top-down approach where a big ruler is saying, I know how to do it. Uh, let's make a great reset according to my plan. No, I'm saying, hey, wait a minute. What about a market pr principle? You want to buy something, you, you put your own money for it and then you buy it for yourself. I decide for myself what I buy. And I can only offer people, people, look, here's a free private city. These are the rules. This is the framework. Do you like it? If you like it, come and we will check it. But it, it could fail. And people can come and on, on the basis of this informed consent and can say, hey, we like Tito's idea. Let's try it out. And then the world can see if it's working. So there's absolutely no need for coercion. There's no need to talk people into something they don't want. There's no need for propaganda. It's just... Here's the contract, here are the rules, who wants to come, comes, and then the world can learn from that example. And we can find, I'm sure, if we have more types of free private city or similar models of special auto autonomous zones, we will have enormous learning effects in very short time. Kind of expanding on that, I think it was Thomas Jefferson that said something along the lines of democracy is mob rule, where 51% take away the rights of the other 49%. I don't remember exactly which context he mentioned that, but it kind of describes that there isn't a full consent. Some critics might say, okay, well, why not just move to another country? Because isn't that an option that we have already had? Yes, yeah, certainly we have this option. That's, this is a kind of the lesser evil option, right? But the problem with that is that in this other countries, the rules can also change overnight, right? There could be a regime change. There could just be a new government elected, a new president elected. And then you have the same problem again. And I think, hey, why not giving people really contractual security, right? Like in a customer a service provider relationship, that would also be applicable to, to countries, right? I have just last week proposed a small country to introduce uh, the regime of a contractual citizen. He, he has no right to vote uh, so that you can keep your political system as you like it, but these people have guaranteed rights and they should be attractive, otherwise nobody's coming. What we today can do, uh, people in Germany are immigrating to Switzerland. They don't have a vote there until they become Swiss after 12 years. But imagine you could go somewhere where you can just say, hey, this is a contract, I like this contract. And the operator doesn't care from which country I come, as long as I stick to the rules. And there I, I, I have security. I'm, they guarantee me security in the country. Imagine they broke into your apartment and you go to the operator and say, hey, wait a minute, I paid for security. You owe me damages. And that's true, right? <laughs> he owes you damages. Imagine you go to your, to your government and say, you owe me damages and they will laugh you out of the room. This is how it should be. And in so far, I think there's so much to improve Well, of course, I'm a kind of an idealist, but I think it's also a business model. If you consider that 90% of the states are making losses every year, and at least according to polls in the UK and the US, 80% of the people are somewhat are not satisfied how they are governed. So you have 80% dissatisfied customers and 90% market participants that are making losses. Man, there must be something for entrepreneurs. 
it must be possible to make the world a better and a freer and a, and a more just place just by introducing mechanisms that we already know, which is supply and demand, competition, and you're not forced to buy things you do not want to buy. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And I, I see similarities to the to Germany and its federalism. So let's say if, if I was a, a parent and had uh, two children and I didn't like the school system in, say, Bavaria, one of the states in Germany, then I could at least go to, say, Baden-Württemberg or another state where I believe the school system is better suited for my for my children or whatever. So that federalism has an advantage for me as a parent. I can move to another state versus having to leave the country. But on the other hand, a lot of Germans, maybe I'm wrong, seem to dislike federalism. Why do you think that is? And is that the case? I don't think that they're really dislike it but they have been educated and that includes me right i'm german too by uh, nationality and i was raised in germany and in school there was we learned that before there was the unification uh, from 1870 or before napoleon came there were several hundreds sovereign territories in the holy roman nation and then napoleon came and reduced this number to uh, i don't know 40 or 50 The, then it was further reduced, 1871, when the First Reich was established, to the federal state that we have today, uh, minus what we've lost in the wars. But we have been constantly told in school and everybody since when I was young, was in the 70s, 80s, that these small states, that was really, that didn't work, right? And the main reason was because you had, had a border control every five kilometers, I mean, which is true, which is which is a nuisance if you're if you're trading. But I mean, this is not an unsolvable problem. You just make um, a trade union, right? Other than that, I think it's not true that Germans are against federalism because it's still there, right? And it's still the tradition, and it's a very very long-reaching tradition. Bavaria is the oldest state in Europe. It has a statehood going back, I don't know, twelve hundred years or something. It's still there. But you're also right that it's disappearing um, because centralism is a, is a force that is increasing by itself. And if people do not really understand and, and are, are not taught the, the advantages from, from federalism, from having different models, then uh, it will disappear over time. And it's indeed so that The differences between the German states are relatively small compared to the differences you have in, in the US and Canada or even in Switzerland where, where municipalities have, have a large amount of the taxes. And um, uh, in, in Germany, it, uh, no municipality has no, no real tax, two small taxes, uh, trade tax and, and dock taxes, stuff like that. So it's, it's really, really, it's, it's not much left from the federalism. At the same time, there are people rediscovering the beauty of small units. And they look at Switzerland and say, hey, these people, this system is more stable. People are less f following less crazy ideas. And, and the reason for that is because a lot of decisions are made on a local level. And a local level, even the democracy is much, it's working much better because you know your, your, your neighbor, you know to respect his different viewpoints. And you know that you just cannot take him away the money because of, of some uh, lunatic idea that is in the media, because you know then he will suffer and he, you know him. And he can come to you and say, why did you do that? So this is why this is working better on a, on a local municipal level. If, if you do not agree with the free private city model, I think it's in everyone's interest that you have more competitions 
because that happens in the past. Uh, in Germany, for example, uh, Goethe, he moved to Sachsen Weimar, which was a small set of 200,000 people, uh, because he thought he could be more influential there than uh, in bigger Hessen or other parts of Germany, which were bigger states. Now want to escape the European Union? Well, you have nearly to leave the continent. And the same in the US. So that's the problem. And I think it should be in everybody's interest that we go back to smaller entities. And it's always possible that these entities agree on a common market or even a common army. If you still have all the other parts of life where you have different approaches, where you had different ideas and different mechanisms, different systems, then you can go into the system that best fits your personality or maybe even your age, right? Maybe that's if, if you're older, you tend to be more conservative and prefer other systems than when you're young. And this would all be possible in such a world. So I have this working hypothesis, and uh, this seems to be related, is that small countries with less government, so not the big government spending types, with less social structures and a much smaller welfare state or the lack of a welfare state are or tend to be much more hospitable and have much more tight-knit communities that help each other out. And I believe that's correlated in, in some fashion Am I right with my hypothesis? Or what is your take on that? Absolutely. I mean, I, I have made several examples in my book. The social question is uh, social security is, is a big thing that you have to deal with if you, you are offering a system like I do. And what I found out is that people really now have lost everything that makes you a good person, which is taking care for your family, right? In the past, you had to take care of your brothers and sisters and even further uncles and aunts. And the legislators all have wiped this out. You're just now re responsible for your parents and your children. So that you say, God, but my brother is starving, not my problem. The next thing is... Um, you are entitled to all kinds of benefits and they cannot even check if this is true what you're claiming. For example, leads that more and more people on, uh, on social welfare, the mayor of the city where I lived in, in Germany, Heidelberg, before I left the country, at that time he said, well, in 1960s, every, I think, 16th child was on social welfare. And today it's every fourth. And it's not that Germany has become a developing country in that time, right? It's just people feel entitled. And you can, can make another point. If they're feeling entitled, they say, well, I have a right to get that. I do, I'm, I'm not even grateful for the people who've provided these funds to me because I'm entitled. So gratefulness is gone. Then responsibility is also gone because I would say in a small community, if everybody knows everybody, Hey, somebody is falling ill, somebody has a problem, somebody is handicapped. And you would go to one of the bigger entrepreneurs in the country and say, in, in the town and would say, can't you find uh, some job for this guy? I mean, he's handicapped, but just that he has something. I know such entrepreneurs who are doing that. They say, I know we don't really need him, but he's feeling valuable if, he's, if he can support us in a way uh, and, and clean some things or whatever and or be a guard. And that was solved, but not today. Today, entrepreneur would say, I have all kinds of obligations, and why should I do that? There's the state who's taking care of them. So you have from both sides, you have the recipient side who's, who's ungrateful, and the other side, which is not feeling obliged any longer because, well, it's all cared by the state. And that makes people becoming less hospital, 
less friendly, less responsible, less social. So the, the social state is making people unsocial. And I, I bring two examples in my book. This in, the, in the 19th century, there were even the trade unions. They had their own self-help groups, uh, self-help groups for illness. And every, every worker had to pay a small amount uh, every, every month. And then if you were ill, out of this fund, you would be paid until you would be recovered. But the trade unionists, they would visit you every single day to see if you're really ill or just pretending. So they had a social control. And that was why this was working. And it was Bismarck who destroyed that system. It wasn't the social democrats. It was Bismarck who top-down came up with the social welfare state to say, hey, we have to somehow bind the workers to the state and make them feel that the state is a good thing for them. And he destroyed this functioning system of the trade unions and other clubs. And another uh, example from contemporary Germany, there was the chief of the uh, railway workers uh, union. And there was a big strike. I think it was five or six years ago. It was a big strike in Germany. And suddenly he, wasn't, he disappeared. In, in the heydays of the, of the fight, of the struggle for higher wages, he was not there. And then everybody was wondering what happened. And the newspaper said maybe there was, a, uh, was an internal power struggle. But then it turned out that he, had, um, he went away for treatment, for medical treatment, because he was entitled for the treatment. And he had postponed it three times. And if he would have postponed it again, it would be void. So his, his claim would be void. So instead of sticking with his people on, in front of his troops, he will say, this social security claim, I have to grab it, right? It, otherwise, it's going away. And so he left his troops in, in, the, in, in the midst of the fight to get his social welfare claim. I mean, this really happened. And it, it shows you how crazy this system is making people. And um, what values are transported with such a system are no good values. And at the end of the day, it's what, I, as I described it, people want more and more and more. And politicians promise more and more and more to get elected. And then eventually the state is running out of money. And what we are currently seeing is just a trick to avoid that. But it's only kicking the can down the road. Uh, zero interest rates. The central banks are are factually buying state bonds. This is printing money, nothing else. And eventually this will be um, come to an end and then we will have a big problem. There will be big turmoils and uh, very, very turbulent times are ahead of us. So to kind of back up what you just said is the fact that Germany has one of the highest taxation and deductions in the world. And now many people will argue, well, that's for the welfare state. So we can spread all the wealth that has been created all around so it's a little more equal. But the funny thing is, even though we have the highest taxes, we have one of the lowest median net wealths in Europe. Yes. And the ironic thing is, where I find that very ironic, is that with bailing out Greece and to some extent Italy, that have a much higher median net wealth is the Germans that have a lower median net wealth are bailing the more wealthy countries out. So essentially, to all those uh, proponents that say, well, a good social welfare state is good and it works. Well, if you look at Germany, the biggest redistributor of wealth in the world, well, that ain't seemed to be working. Yeah, that works uh, a certain time. The, the point is that 
you made rightly the examples of Greece and Italy. I mean, these people, <laughs> these countries are a country where the government is not very functional, let's put it that way, compared to Northern European standards. But people have learned over time that they should take care of themselves. So they have all houses, right? They're, most of them are house owners. And that, that is what making the majority of their wealth have bigger wealth in Germany, where most people live in, um, in rental apartments. And they think, yeah, if you tell people, you know, what you're paying in is immediately redistributed to the young, uh, to the old people. And if you have fewer young people and more old people, the system will eventually collapse. But the point here is, David, these, the people in Germany, and that's why I left the country, they do not want to listen. They, of course, they want to tell themselves that the social welfare fed is this is the best of all worlds. And if you are saying, hey, I'm warning you that this is not uh, sustainable, they don't want to hear you. And so they have to learn. And unfortunately, this is the case, right? And this is also what made me come up with this free private city model, because I do not need a majority in the country to make it happen. Of course, I need a majority to allow this this model, but I don't need the majority of the the people to move into a free private city. It, it's it's enough if a small percentage is just trying it out and then people can just see if it's working or not. And I think you and I will experience in our lifetime that the, the social welfare state in Germany will collapse. Uh, and then it would be good if we had an alternative on hand. And that's why I'm I'm starting my free private city models, of course, in countries that are not very attractive, but they have to do something um, and in so far, they are open to their models. And I hope I can return to Europe with this model one day and people are accepting it voluntarily. So up until now, we've talked about the theory and the concept of a free private city. But how would such a city work in detail? Do you just go to some third world dictator and ask them something like, hey, uh, I would like to uh, set up a free private city in your country over here where nobody is living and you don't need that land anyway and play some monopoly obviously this is over exaggeration and oversimplification but do you have some concrete examples where such a private city is actually being built and how that's being implemented in a practical manner i have three examples uh, all all are democracies Let's start with Honduras, because Honduras was a little bit, they were early, they were before the free private cities, before the charter cities idea, they were there. They really wanted to create a Hong Kong in the Caribbean, people from the Honduran government, a jurist, a group of jurists, because they say our country is not reformable. The entrenched interests are too big and we have tried everything and it's not working. And we have zero trust in, inter, in the in, international community. So let's copy Hong Kong. We bring a common law system uh, we bring judges from London or other Commonwealth countries and, and they should just try to replicate that model. And so they, they created a law which was also formed like the Hong, Hong Kong Basic Law a bit. It's called the Sede Law. I'll put a long story short. Uh, it's a kind of a charter city top-down model. And I was involved. People, after I published my book, people approached me and say, hey, are you interested in and joining one of the Honduran projects. And I said, hey, wow, yes, they even changed the constitution to make it possible. That's great. But it's not a private governance model, um, but we can make it one. And so we created a kind of a hybrid where you have public-private partnership. So the actual governance is done by a private company. This law, probably because some libertarian advisors smuggled it in, have has even foreseen an agreement of coexistence. So there is a resident contract possible. 
And I was um, instrumental with for the first CD. Uh, CD stands for Zone for Economic Development and Employment. Um, they have huge autonomy. Actually, they only have to follow the Honduran criminal law, some parts of the constitution and the international agreements of Honduras. Other than that, they can completely create a new law, uh, which they did uh, with my help um, and, and others. So the common law system was created within Honduras. The CEDE Prospera now is the first permitted CEDE. It has, as I said, is a hybrid model between public and private governance, but it would say it, it comes relatively close to a free private CEDE. I would say about 70% free private CEDE is possible according to the Honduran CEDE law. You have two other projects now, and what I said is competition <laughs> is already starting. They have all different models. Uh, one is a propriety community where you cannot acquire property. It's remains all with the operating entity you only have a kind of a, of a rental agreement and, and and then you have to follow all the rules whereas at the prospera say that the first say that i mentioned uh you can acquire property and you get a you are protected by a contract it's it, it's what i said basically what 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 the advantages of a free private city are and of course because i was part of the project and the people invited me because of uh, the ideas i had and then, then we have a third CD now, which just is different. It's, it's basically one company CD. It's more for Hondurans and just uh, producing. And then you have an, two other projects which are supposed to come uh, to get a uh, government approval this year so that you have five models and all are different. And that is, I think, a proof. Uh, of course, there's a lot of opposition, as usual with such projects, but there's a constitutional amendment, there's a law, you have an international treaty with Kuwait, which is guaranteeing this law to be valid for 50 years, even if it's withdrawn. So I would say we are already seeing the first fruits of these ideas, of charter city, free private cities ideas. And of course, because the Honduran government people were reasonable enough to, and basically brave enough to, to, to try it out. And uh, this is the first example. The second example is normally people approach me and say, hey, here's a country where you can make it happen. I say, here, here are 10 points of autonomy that we need for a free private city. You first check if this is really feasible in your country. And in 90% of the, of the time, I never heard back from those persons because it's just too hard to negotiate that kind of autonomy. But sometimes it happens. And um, then... It's normally that we sell this as a kind of a special economic zone plus with larger autonomy. With, we say we need own administration. We need the right to make own legislation, at least in some areas, and own security and own courts. Otherwise, we are not coming. It doesn't make sense for us. We are currently in advanced negotiations with an African state. They said, okay, we, we understand that and uh, we think we can make it happen. Because all other, other plans to become a hub for this and that with so special economic zones, that failed. And I said, yeah, it failed because you didn't create a new system. In a small country where everybody knows everybody, it's extremely hard for newcomers to start something. So you really have to take the judges, right? Even in, in, in successful countries like Monaco, the judges are not from the country because the country is too small and they would be related to everyone or they would have to do a favor to everyone. So they are importing judges from France and other countries. So this is has nothing to do with colonialism. This is makes perfect sense in small countries that you import judges or take just other 
uh, other courts from other areas, which might also be other small countries. And this was convincing to the people. And um, so we are currently, we have our law in parliament. We have the support of the biggest parties. And hopefully this is coming together. Uh, but um, the third model was uh, a country where also a group in parliament said, okay, we are becoming a corrupt country. This is a, was a country that was becoming independent uh, only 30 years ago. And they said, we are becoming more and more corrupt and we want to stop that. And uh, can you establish something like a free private city in our country? We support you. And, but the government had said, yeah, you put 10 million on the uh, on an escrow account that, that we see that you are serious and we are not willing to give you full autonomy, but a limited autonomy according to special economic zone law, which, which was significantly extended. I would say, yeah, I could live with that. So they're still in negotiation trying to find investors uh, for, for that uh, 10 million. But the point is... That's how it works, right? It's You want to create a win-win situation for the country in Honduras, for example. 12% of the income of such a city zone has to go to uh, a fund of the Honduran government for infrastructure, communities, military, everything. And that is also a fair deal, right? Because they are you're using some of their infrastructure, um, you are using their military protection, serenity, things like that. And that's only fair that you pay something for that. When it comes to to rules, it's all negotiation. In in some areas of the world, like Honduras, you cannot come with, hey, let's make drugs free. Forget about that. Not in Honduras. But they don't have a problem if you're run, running around with a gun, right? Because everybody's doing it. In other parts of the world, it would be the, the other way around, right? Marijuana is not a problem. But gun ownership, who doesn't work here? So this is just to give you an understanding. I mean, at the end, it's a big bargaining like it ever has been. But And we're trying to bargain... Um, enough autonomy so that we really can make it work. If we have only, out of the 10 points I'm asking, if we have only three, it's not enough, right? But if we have five, six, seven, we can start. This is reality. This is how it's going to start. And I'm really looking forward to the other projects in Honduras because we will really see in, in lifetime, in real time, how different models develop and we all can only learn from that. So if we take issues like social welfare, taxes, education, that's a fairly important point for most people. You mentioned some other issues like drugs and weapons and maybe add crimes in there. How would that work? Would that all be contractual with the free private city? Or how would those issues be dealt with? Or is everyone on their own? No, there's there's a set of rules. You can, as I said, protection of life, liberty, or property means there is a kind of security. There's a police. There's a kind of crime, right? You are not allowed to do some things. And if you do that, uh, we either kick you out or you, you, you spend some time in prison and then you get kicked out. Um, because if you just get kicked out and that is the only sanction, then people would maybe come as, as tourists and kill other people because nothing can happen to them other than they being kicked out. So there have to be some, some criminal uh, deterrence. But this would all be in a contract, right? It would say, okay, here's the contract. That's what you pay for protection of life, liberty and property. And there will be a minimal social security, so nobody will be starved to death on the road. This will be included in your annual fee. And there will be probably an app for, for newcomers and say, here's a list of social security possibilities, insurances, self-help groups, charities, whatever. Um, make your own choice. And we recommend this or that. Or probably we don't recommend, but we list just those. Uh, and that's the same for, for education and healthcare. 
it is our job as a service provider to create an attractive environment. That means we are actively look, looking for providers for those services. And if they are not willing to come, we have to set them up by ourselves in the beginning. And for example, a hospital or a school and then later sell it to uh, uh, to somebody who's doing this uh, uh, for profit on a private basis because they normally are specialized and can do a better better job than we can. And there are already a lot of, especially for third world countries, a lot of private cheap school providers. Uh, I've seen this in Honduras. And, and so far, you would have a direct claim against me for these basic things. And for the other things, we would at least help you in finding the right provider and we would secure that there is at least one provider. So that is the situation in a free private city. And eventually over time, we hope that there's a variety of, of service providers for all kinds of services so that you get, like in other markets, more competition means better quality, lower price. That is hopefully also development in our case. And as a start, we guarantee you the protection of life, liberty and property. And I can tell you, this is already quite a lot in many countries. Those who are really interested in some more objections that they might have, I mean, your book really illustrates a lot of these objections, and I can highly recommend the book for sure. So to kind of sum up concept, you're basically not saying your idea is supposed to replace all democracies around the world. You're just basically saying you want to try a new product, which you believe is superior to other products on the market. But I, I see the whole construct of free private cities requires or gives a lot of freedom, be it through free private cities or other constructs. And it implies people take responsibilities for their own lives, uh, for their successes, but also for their failures. So they can't just privatize profits and then if something goes wrong, socialize the losses. So to me, it seems that the free private city might not have mass appeal because I, I see the majority of the population, uh, as you mentioned throughout this episode, it, it's actually a lot of too much common sense. And as we know, citizens tend to vote for people that you know promise the most free stuff. Free always sounds good. And But today we see, especially in the EU, a very different trend where you have a one-size-fits-all approach that's basically a, a supranational, undemocratic and bureaucratic state that disregards any referendums, as we've seen multiple times, Denmark, Holland, Ireland, Sweden, France, you know, and there's so many. So it doesn't seem to be have majority appeal, but I think it's good that there are multiple products because ultimately, and I think this is for me, it was the key takeaway is that competition is much more powerful in controlling centralization and these uh, disadvantages of democracies better than having the majority rule the country. Does that summarize that fairly accurately? Excellent. That is really in a nutshell the model. And if, if your listeners have, have more objections, I, I invite you to have a look at the freeprivatecities.com website of the Free Private Cities Foundation. There's a FAQ list. And, and as you said in the book, I have a, a whole chapter of, uh, about objections. I invite everybody to have a closer look at the model. There are also a couple of videos. As you said, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a product, maybe not for everyone, but its existence alone can change uh, the world to the better. And maybe at some point in time, people come and say, we don't want to live in a free private city, but we like this contract idea. I want a contract from you government as well. So that might be a side effect of just having a new idea, a new product, which at the end benefits everyone. 
were there some, what are your like top three key learnings that you have had with the free private cities that you say didn't have five or 10 years ago? Yeah, first, you have to be really flexible and not dogmatic. Because at the end, I think it's just a core of things that just give you people as much freedom as possible and stick to your contract. It's not about at the fringes like drugs and weapons and all these libertarian dogmas that make make a big difference. And, and even if you, you have to introduce some elements of democracy, we can live with that, right? So that, this is not a problem. So I think you have to, whatever, learn that you have to adapt really to what is what is available a in the market of governance and b what is acceptable to governments and c that depends on the region right in some region they have other preferences than in others and if i was a fundamentalist i would have said no i don't do that because it's not a purely private model like in honduras or in in this african uh, or uh, other country i would say no it, i don't have all my 10 points so i i'm not doing it I think it's better, um, I might be wrong, but I think it's better to start where you have maybe six points out of 10, maybe not two, but if you have five or six out of 10, I think it's worth a trial. That's what I have learned and I'm, I hope that I will continue in starting such projects. And if I fail, I invite everybody who has heard about the idea, has re read my book. It's your turn. Yeah, and I'll be sure to link the book, the audiobook, in the show notes as well. And if people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way of doing so? Well, it depends. If you want to invest in a in a concrete project, then I would just say go through the Tipolis website, send me a message through LinkedIn. Or if you want, are more interested in the philosophical idea and have own project ideas, of, uh, then go through the free private cities website. There's also an email there. Okay, perfect. Thanks for being on the podcast. It was uh, definitely very interesting talking about uh, free private cities. So thanks again for being on the podcast. My pleasure. Wow, what an interesting interview. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. And if you're a regular follower and a listener of this podcast, you know that I always try to summarize this episode and give you some additional thoughts. Unfortunately, we didn't have enough time to cover all aspects of this fascinating idea of free private city. Things such as, are these cities only something for the ultra-rich? What happens if a free private city operator changes the contract or just skimps on maintenance? How are the citizens of free private cities protected from this type of behavior? And couldn't the free private city extort its citizen as it has basically a regional monopoly similar to toll roads? And how do you prevent the host country from taking over your free private city after it has become too successful or too painful for that host country? But you can find all these answers in Titus's book or audio book that's even free if you have an Audible account. So by the end of this episode, I think it's safe to say that we should have much more competition among governments and have various societal models or products, if you will. And this is probably very hard for people to accept that democracy might not be the end-all, be-all solution or even the best solution to all of our problems that we face today. Now, the most obvious example was Germany's recent flood disaster. Guess who failed? Guess who was the first to be on-site and working on solutions, completely voluntary, harnessing the power of spontaneous order and compassion? 
surely wasn't the German government. They not only failed, but they were completely incompetent, using this as a welcome opportunity to gain more votes for the upcoming election. And yet, it was the private citizen and private companies around the world that pulled together to help the people in need. Again, completely voluntary, without the state coercing anybody. And this also reminds me of the time after the financial crisis, where in Detroit you had some parts of the city that were basically anarchy. So most people assume that anarchy is chaos, uh, social unrest, but nothing like that occurred there. Now, how is that possible? Well, community pulled together and even offered paid services for security. And guess what? Police did not show up, but it was private companies and no one got killed or harmed because they were preventing crime instead of arresting someone when crime has already occurred. So if you're interested in that, there's a four-part mini-series that are in the show notes that's well worth a watch. Here are also some additional thoughts that you as a listener should ruminate on as well. So if you believe that people at a certain age at least, can and should take responsibilities for their lives, then that has to include the fruits of their labor as well as taking responsibility for their own mistakes. And if you view humans in a positive light, which I hope you do, then you'll have to allow people to do what they want. They're going to make a ton of mistakes, they're going to do more right than wrong, but in either case, you don't really have the right to intervene. But politics is about amassing power to tell other people what to do. As we've seen throughout history and countries around the world, even in liberal democratic constitutions, is that these democracies violate their own civil laws, especially if these countries have a welfare state, and some even have a warfare state as well. So this welfare state forces one person to live at the expense of another simply because social groups demand the redistribution of wealth. Don't forget, this redistribution is only possible by taking away the fruits of others' labor. The consequences never-ending fights for redistribution. Just ask yourself, how do you legally justify expropriating a citizen through a third party, namely the government, that uses coercion? Even instances of misfortune don't really justify the exploitation of others with force. Now, most defenders of the welfare state will probably object and state that solidarity and social justice could not be established without the government. But let's be honest, is there really someone that believes that solidarity forced under the threat of violence is solidarity? And what is even social justice? Doesn't that really depend on where you are in that particular system? And if you believe that this justifies one person to live at the expense of another, and who decides what each person gets and what fair is? Or simply put, taxation is theft. It's taking your money by force, giving it to another group that basically screams the loudest or has the most organized interest groups. Those in favor of income tax should remember that this always assumes that 100% of your income belongs to the government and it alone decides what part of that you get to keep. Don't forget, you have to declare all of your income to the state. In other words, if you have a tax burden of, say, 40 to 50% in a given country, you're essentially working five to six months solely for the government before you work for yourself. And that's why it's considered slavery. Now, if you might say, wait a minute, taxation and slavery? I can highly recommend the very, very famous story, The Tale of the Slave, by Robert Nozick. 
which explains this more in detail and is a very short read, something like two to three pages. And I'll post that in the show notes as well. And it's also important to know why these patterns reoccur. Titus explains this quite nicely in his book and briefly mentioned parts of it in this episode, which I'll summarize as I think this is one of the most important points to make. At the beginning, almost everyone on the planet wants to increase their standard of living, ideally in the easiest way possible. And the easiest way to increase your standard of living is to take something away from others. Now, however, most people find it kind of difficult to simply march into a shop and take the goods without any form of payment or take the nice BMW from your neighbor. So it's easier for them to hire a third party to do the job who will tell them a nice story about why the whole thing is legal and morally justified and should make them feel all warm and fuzzy. That's the reason why people turn to the state. Actually, a cartel uh, would describe it more accurately. Remember, the state is the only institution that can take away the fruits of others' labors without any legal repercussions. But this does not change the character of this so-called process, which in the same society would otherwise constitute theft or robbery. This is one of the hardest pills for most people to swallow. Governments and politicians serve these market demands, otherwise they would be voted out of office or removed in favor of those who cater to this exact demand. So over time, more and more social groups find out how to use the power of the state for their own interest. This in turn, the state, not actual economic activity, becomes the main source for raising your standard of living. Fewer and fewer people end up working in a productive sector, evident by the fact that government never seems to reduce in size. Fights over redistribution intensifies and public debt spirals out of control. And finally, the state runs out of money. The result, a crisis leading to radical reforms or politicians promising change. And the whole process starts again, reminding the citizens of Groundhog Day. Sadly, the majority believes that if the government doesn't provide a certain service or infrastructure, then it wouldn't exist at all. But in almost all cases, the market, as long as it's truly free, can provide a better service at a lower price than the state can. Citizens don't really get an itemized receipt with the exact amount of taxes they paid for a particular service, which by the nature of government is always more expensive than without government intervention and its monopoly. There are no free lunches, no matter how hard you believe in Santa Claus. So most will disagree and state the example of, in quotes, free education. But I always ask these people if their professors work for free and if the building maintenance they study in is also free. I've never really heard a yes to that question. Instead, I hear that that's what taxes are for. I have yet to be presented with an itemized bill for the taxes that are being used for education or any other governmental service. I can almost guarantee you that the price is going to be much, much more than in a real free market, but you're still being billed a higher price through your taxes. Another important aspect we should also consider is the way we create value today. That has changed dramatically over the past, say, 100 to 150 years and will continue to do so exponentially over the coming decades. Karl Marx himself once said, if you change the dominant mode of production that underpins a society, the social and political structure will change too. 
And since it's easier than ever to work remotely, we've become more and more mobile in the process. The free market can not only create spontaneous order, but also helps with the discovery process in finding new solutions to problems that are or have plagued us humans. Probably the most important aspect of the mall that rarely gets discussed is competition. Competition has proven itself as humanity's only known permanently effective means of limiting human power. Shouldn't this reason alone be enough to convince skeptics that we need more innovation and diversity of ecosystems? And as we've already learned from podcast episode number 17 with Tony Ingerson, the decision makers are almost always too far removed from the actual problems to make well-informed decisions. Knowledge is always decentralized from authority, yet according to the principle of subsidiarity, problems should be dealt with at the most immediate or local level, or in other words, the smallest group or the lowest level of an organizational hierarchy, being the citizen. So when applied to community, this also implies either dividing the community when it has grown beyond a certain size, or introducing additional levels of autonomy, which is sometimes something we see in nature as well. Thus, we can also conclude that diversity and competition are necessary not only as a means of limiting power, but also for gaining knowledge and further development. So if we want to live in freedom and self-determination, then we need more, not less, diverse systems. Why not apply the same principles to our societies and have multiple products competing against each other and satisfying even the needs of the minority in this way? There should be a market for these new concepts alongside traditional governments. Let the people decide. Isn't that what democracy claims to be its strength? Letting people decide? At the end of the day, I believe every citizen has essentially two options, vote or exit, meaning you can either vote and engage in a political process if you still believe that that can make an impact, or exit, leave the country and move to one that better suits your views and where you're treated much better. Why not let these different systems or products flourish and unleash more innovation so we can see what works and what doesn't? What's the worst that can happen? We learn something useful from these experiments? The impact on the existing taxpayer of the old system or traditional governments is zero, as they're not involved at all. Only those who want to volunteer and are accepted will have to bear the responsibility. The more products any country can create and launch, and this also applies to companies as well, the higher the odds will be that we'll find something that works much better than our current products. That being said, I'll finish with a quote from an Apple ad that seems to fit perfectly in this case. Here's to the crazy ones, the misfits, the rebels, the troublemakers, the round pegs in the square holes, the ones who see things differently. They're not fond of rules, and they have no respect for the status quo. You can quote them, disagree with them, glorify or vilify them, and about the only thing you can't do is ignore them, because they change things. They move and push the human race forward. And while some may see them as crazy, we see genius, because the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones that do.
Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, there's plenty more where that came from. Just head to our podcast website, innovationalcorrectness.com or gammabeyond.com, or just follow us on LinkedIn. There you will also find long-form articles, videos, and other podcast episodes about innovation and transformation. And if I could ask you for one small favor, it would be this. Please don't forget to subscribe and leave us a rating or review on iTunes, Overcast, or the podcast app of your choice. It really helps us out by encouraging more people to find our podcast and reach hard-to-get guests. Last but not least, if you have any suggestions, for further episodes or guests that we should invite on our podcast or just have feedback, you have three options. Emailing us at info at gammabeyond.com, filling out our anonymous feedback form at innovationalcorrectness.com, or leaving us a voice message with your question or feedback so that it can be included in the podcast and all listeners can profit. Just go to innovationalcorrectness.com. Links are in the show notes. 